G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Realfaith.org.au In my mind, I thought, well, people don't bully people that they like. People don't react negatively to people that are popular. And I thought that if I could become somebody else, they'd stop picking on me and and maybe they would like the person that I'd become rather than the real me. I had to be somebody different to be able to be accepted by my peers and I think even by my father. Welcome to Real Faith. Conversations about the impact faith has on our lives and the challenges we go through. Helping us today and giving us hope for tomorrow. That's real people, real life and real faith with Eric Scadabo. Justin Lipiet grew up in South Africa and found himself pretending to be somebody he wasn't in order to be accepted by his peers at school. He says he hid behind a rough exterior of drinking and fighting in order to keep people from getting to know the real him. However, today we'll find out how God takes off the mask and has set him free. Justin is joining us from his home on the Sunshine Coast. Justin Lippiot, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Eric. It's a privilege to be here. Glad to have you with us. And as we just heard, your background is you grew up in South Africa. What was that like? It was a little bit unusual, I guess, um, growing up in white apartheid, segregated South Africa. It didn't have a bad life, but it was it was different. And um, I guess when you compare it to Australia, I think it was an era and a time where um, the differences in skin color were really, really noticeable. Hmm. Did that impact you growing up? Um, Not really. I guess for me, the most important time, I guess, was in 1976 when there was the Sharpeville riots in South Africa. And Mm -hmm. my mum and I were alone at home and my my little brother was probably about six months old. And there was a whole lot of banging on the front door. And my mum was afraid and took out her 38 and fired two shots through the front door. Uh, Nobody was injured. But uh, (laughs) it was that fear factor, I guess, that um, a lot of white South Africans lived through and continue to live through Mm. in South Africa at the moment. Yeah, that would definitely have a huge impression on you as a youngster. Now, you said you were living with your mother. That was because your parents were divorced? Um, Not at that stage. My mother and father went on to get divorced when I was about 12. Mm-hmm. and I ran away to boarding school. My father ran away to the UK with his new find, I guess. And, uh, yeah, so my mother and father were divorced. You said you ran away to boarding school? What, what does that mean? Yeah. Most kids don't have any choice in what school they go to. Well, I, I guess the thing was that when my mother and father got divorced, I didn't want to be at home anymore. Mm-hmm. And my mother had taken to looking at me as the man of the house. And so I took on all the the pain and the punishment of, of a failed marriage and, and everything else that went wrong in the home. Oh, so wow. And how me, old were you at this point? Twelve. Oh, wow. That's a lot for a mm-hmm. 12-year-old. Yeah, it was. Um, and so for me, I just wanted to get away from home. And mm-hmm. when my father suggested that I go to boarding school, I grabbed the opportunity with both hands. And how did that turn out? Was that a good decision? I thought it was a great decision. I learned a lot of things at boarding school, but I also learned that I was an outcast. Um, I learned that I didn't fit in. I learned that um, I wasn't popular. 
And I learned that being somebody that didn't fight back was always going to be a problem with bullies. Hmm. So were you bullied? Yeah, I was uh, quite a lot. And I guess trying to live life and survive in a boarding school when you're facing so many internal challenges can be really, really difficult. Um, mm -hmm. I remember this one time there was this kid was teasing me relentlessly and, and I grabbed him around the throat. And I wasn't an aggressive kid. I just honestly just lost it. Mm -hmm. And the whole of the boarding house that I was living in didn't speak to me for two weeks. They literally just ignored me like I didn't exist. Oh, wow. To kind of punish you. Yeah. I got punished by the system. So... That has to be hard being away from home, your support structure, and then being bullied on top of that. It must have been very difficult. Yeah, my father was overseas at the time, and my mother didn't really engage much with me. So it was really, really difficult. I felt very, very alone. Mm -hmm. I guess I just couldn't find my groove anywhere. I wasn't a jock. I wasn't a nerd. I loved computers. I loved singing in the choir, and I loved playing rugby. So I, was, I guess I was pretty confused. Yeah, so you weren't... Uh kind of like the arty type, but a little bit of arty, but you weren't the uh, the sporty guy, but a little sporty, but you weren't the intellectual, but a little intellectual. <laughs> Is that kind of summing yeah. up? Yeah, that's right. I was a bit, little bit of everything. And, I, mm -hmm. and because I didn't fit in, it, it made me a bit of a target for all the people that did. Now, tell us about your father. He was very good in, at business. Is that right? Yeah, my father was a really, really good businessman um, and had built up an engineering company to significant heights in South Africa. But once uh, my mother and father got divorced, my father had decided that he would follow the new love of his life overseas to the UK and I guess left everything behind, including us. Hmm. So were you kind of feeling abandoned? Yeah, I felt, I felt abandoned most of the time. I felt alone and abandoned. I felt like there was no connection to me and I was alone. I mean, I think back to all the, you know, I, I was um, in a play once and I remember looking out on the stage into the lights and hoping to catch a glimpse of my mother and father there, but they were never there. Mm. You know, I'd have sporting games and my parents were never there. Um, half term would come and the parents would come and fetch their kids and Mine were never there. I'd always have to stay at school. So it was a pretty mm. lonely experience. They never visited you? No, not once. Wow. I mean, it's hard enough being away from home, but then even when there was a break, they didn't come. No. Twice a year, I used to go home. Mm. And that was it? That was it. So it's not surprising, though, that during one half term, um, there was this guy, his name was Dingbat. He was a, a guy <laughs> that, I, that I'd met. We, at boarding school, we give them lots of different names. And Dingbat had convinced me to go into the little the town that the school was in. And we snuck out and we went to a party. Uh, there was girls there, which was really amazing. And for some reason, I ended up drinking a bottle of vodka with him on the, on the pavement and, and smoking marijuana. And um, didn't really recognize what had happened until the next morning, woke up with a terrible, terrible hangover. And one of the, um, the headmaster's associates telling me and Dingbat that the headmaster wanted to see us. So the one time I was actually naughty, the one time I actually played out, I actually got caught and expelled. Oh, wow. Well, how did your <laughs> father feel about that? My father was furious. I thought he was going to kill me. He had just returned from overseas. And my father was absolutely gutted. He was so furious and disappointed that, you know, his son had done this. 
And what was even worse, none of the private schools would accept me. So I had to then go to a state school, which was even more challenging for me. Now, why is that? What's the thing about a state school? Well, the first day I went to the state school, I was I saw two girls fighting in, in the um, lunch area. And this one girl, they were having a full-on fist fight. And this one girl basically ripped the other girl's ear off. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and, and I remember staring at this ear in her hand, thinking to myself, oh, my God, what have I got myself into? Yeah, well, that sounds pretty rough and tough. It was the first day. It was the first day. First day. The third day. <laughs> the third day, one of the guys in the school and his henchmen invited me down to the bicycle shed um, mm -hmm. after school on my third day because they didn't like the color of my uniform. I hadn't changed uniforms yet. And so I, I guess I realized that whoever I was internally, the real Justin wasn't good enough. I, I would never, ever match or be accepted as myself. I had to be somebody different to be able to be accepted by my peers and and I think even by my father. So why did you think you wouldn't be accepted as yourself? Um, because in my mind, I thought, well, people don't bully people that they like. Hmm. People don't um, react negatively to people that are popular. And I thought that if I could become somebody else, they would... They'd stop be, picking on you. That's right. They'd stop picking on me, and, and maybe they would like the person that I'd become rather than the real me. So by having kind of an alter ego, putting on a mask, so to speak, it was just practical. You wouldn't get bullied and picked on it as much. Yeah, absolutely. I became Billy the Goat. Yeah, yo, this is kind of your alter ego, Billy the Goat. Why that name, and how did that come about? I was threatened with violence in my class, and... I thought at the time that I needed to be somebody else, as I'd said. I'd been teaching my little brother how to read at the time, and he was reading. We were reading about Billy Goat Gruff mm -hmm. and how the grass was greener on the other side. So I thought, oh well, what I'll do is I'll call myself Billy the Goat, and I'll draw a big marijuana leaf on my school bag, and then everybody would think I was cool. Did it work? Yeah. <laughs> that's the irony of it when i became a, a crazed teenager called billy the goat um that was disrespectful mean nasty you know and i wasn't always really bad but somebody that was completely reckless uh fearless people just accepted me that it was, it was great huh. um i have to say though that behind the persona was always the real me yeah. i was always scared i was always nervous but I never let anybody know. I never let anybody see the real me. Our guest today is Justin Lipiet, who's originally from South Africa. As we've been hearing, Justin began pretending to be somebody he wasn't in order to be accepted by his peers at school. On the outside, people saw a tough guy who liked to do crazy things, but what was going on inside of him was quite another story. We'll find out what happens next in Justin's life when we return right here on Real Faith. The Word for Today is Australia's most widely read daily devotional, designed to give you practical teaching to keep you focused on your relationship with Jesus. Read it online or subscribe to the free printed edition at thewordfortoday.com.au. You're listening to Real Faith, conversations with real people about how God works in their lives. If you want to know more about integrating faith into your life, our website is realfaith.org.au. Just go to the website and you'll find helpful articles about the impact faith can have on your life. 
Once again, that's realfaith.org.au. Welcome back. I'm Eric Scadabo, and today I'm chatting with Justin Lipiet, who's originally from South Africa. As we heard before the break, Justin grew up pretending to be somebody he wasn't in order to be accepted by his peers at school. He says he hid behind a rough exterior of drinking and fighting in order to keep people from getting to know the real him. Now we'll find out what happens next in Justin's life as he and I continue our conversation. Now, physically, were you a big guy or physically intimidating? Yeah, I don't think I was. Um, I mean, currently I'm 5'10". I think I've shrunk over the last few years. <laughs> That's what we all say, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, I think I was about 5'10", 5'11". During high school, I was quite a stocky guy, played rugby union, played for the first team. And so I guess I wouldn't say I was imposing. There was guys that were bigger than me, but everybody knew me as, as being really tough and somebody that could really handle punishment on the on the playing field. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that made me do things that were um, a little bit reckless. Like uh, one of my party tricks was to eat beer glasses. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and um, that wasn't great fun the next day when my teeth were all very sensitive and obviously I had um, other problems to deal with as well. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. yeah I, so- I did those kinds of weird things that other people wouldn't do. So you're rough and tough, but also drinking and drugs was part of the picture? Yes, I drank a lot. My dad was a drinker. Um, we, we used to drink every night, my father and I. Um, I started drinking at the age of 14, 15 actually. So your dad became your drinking buddy in a sense. Um, right? Well, yes, I was his drinking buddy. And oh, yeah. The irony is, is that we stopped being father and son when I was about 15 and I started to become more his friend. Mm-hmm. So my father and I used to go drinking on Friday nights and Saturday nights, and my father was a very heavy drinker as well. And so you know we'd hang out in bars, and most of my my dad's friends were probably in their forties or late thirties, and mm-hmm. and so I used to struggle to have relationships with teenage girls, but I never had any issue with the, the divorcees and the single ladies that had had too much to drink in the bars at that stage. So I mm-hmm. guess I found my comfort and relationships in an artificial environment. Okay, so this is very dysfunctional, your relationship with your father. And we should also talk about your father's business. It wasn't exactly legal, is that right? (laughs) No, my my dad had decided that when he came back to South Africa from the UK, he'd been in business for a little while, but had ventured into um, commodity trading. And at that stage, my dad had decided that dealing in foreign exchange and financial fraud was far more lucrative than working hard for a living. Um, And so my dad traded in in all kinds of things, diamonds, emeralds, foreign currency, uh, those kinds of things. And so um, it was an interesting environment for my brother and I to grow up with. Yeah. So here you desperately wanted affirmation from your father. But to get affirmation from him, you had to do things that were dysfunctional. Drink heavy, hang out in bars. Does that kind of sum up that phase of your life? Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to be my dad's friend. And I guess my desire to be everybody's friend and to be liked by everybody made me do things that I'm not proud of. Mm. Um, But at that stage, and I guess for many years from there, I would always be somebody that I wasn't just to be affirmed. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, and then in 1986, you graduated from high school barely. Is that right? Yeah, I did graduate. I was I was surprised that I, I had graduated. At that stage, I was a pretty wild young man. Mm-hmm. Um, I had been chased by armed security guards in a really prestigious hotel for skinny dipping in the fountain. Oh. Um, they'd try to knock me off the, the, the internal water feature uh, with their batons unsuccessfully. I managed to get away. Um, I don't even know how I did that or where I ended up, but I just remember it was um, in the newspapers at the time. And I guess the dreams of becoming a, a marine biologist became further and further from my mind. That was, had always been my passion to become a marine biologist. I'd been accepted to go to university to study marine biology and um, was on track for a, a, a bursary at a Scripps Oceanic Institute at the University of California, San Diego. Oh, wow. Yeah, but I got drunk with my mates and ended up on a military train as a conscript into the South African National Defense Force. So this was a pivotal moment of your life. You could have went one way, marine biologist, or another way, serving in the Army. That's right. And um, it's one of those big regrets that I have. Mm-hmm. You can't go back. You can't undo it. But I, I wish sometimes that I, if I had the opportunity again, I would make the right choices. So what happened when you went into the Army? Why was that the wrong choice? Well, it was at the height of the Angolan uh, bush war. Mm-hmm. And so I spent um, a significant part of um, 1987 and 1988 in southwest Africa, Namibia. It's called Namibia now. Mm-hmm. Um, and in um, southern Angola. Uh, so I came out, when I came out of the Army, um, and I'd, I'd actually spent two weeks in a military hospital f- for psychoevaluation because I think even at that stage I was suffering from forms of PTSD. What was it that was causing the trauma in your life at that point? I was Billy the Goat still. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was still Billy the Goat. Everybody knew me as Billy. And the, the challenge, you know, being, being the person that was completely fearless on the outside didn't mean that the person on the inside wasn't experiencing fear. Mm-hmm. But I also think that the challenges I had with the drinking um, and the misbehavior just made things a lot worse. And then and all the time, the two years that I was in the army, and I'd, I'd managed to get on leave a couple of times, but um, in all the times that I was in the army, I only got three letters. Mm. You know, So still feeling abandoned from your family. Yeah, that's right. And, mm-hmm. and from, from my friends and and so that whole thing that I had experienced in boarding school, I felt coming back like a tsunami. Yeah, and you were, in a sense, living in conflict with yourself because yes. you're living this yeah, Billy the right. Goat alter ego rough and tumble character, but that's not really who you are. So you're constantly in conflict with yourself. People think that lying is easy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's only easy the first time, but when you have to live the lie, it's, it's pretty hard work. And so I guess there's this constant draining on one's um, emotions mm-hmm. and psyche, I guess. It's just, a, it's an awful place to be. So what was the lowest point while you were in the army? I think the lowest point for me in the army was around um, October 1988. I had been drinking a lot and I, I think I just got to a point where I felt I'd lost everything. Um, I hadn't really lost anything because I didn't have anything, but I just felt completely alone. Mm -hmm. And I thought that if I could do 
even more crazy things that I would potentially be shot at or killed. And so in a way it became almost a, another a lie that I ended up telling myself that I was invincible and couldn't die mm. because I'd do all these crazy things and I just never got killed. Nothing ever happened to me. So you're talking about doing wild and crazy things while in a war zone? Yes, but um, when, when I actually finished the army, uh, my father had, by that stage, integrated himself into a syndicate. A crime syndicate? Yes. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And so they were dealing in a lot of different things um, at the time. And so my newly found skills were welcomed in this new syndicate. And what skills would those be? I was an enforcer. So basically at 19 years old, my job was to secure the funds that were owed by any and all means possible. Oh, so uh, like a debt collector, but an intimidating debt collector. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. Physically I mean, I intimidating to... debt collector? Well, let me, I'll tell you a brief story. There was mm -hmm. a, this time that a, a tradie friend of mine um, had, on a Friday afternoon, had needed to go buy some tools. And I said, well, I'll come with you. And we went to this, this store and, and bought some tools. And I saw a three-pound hammer there. And, and I remember saying to him, well, can I have the hammer? And he said, well, what do you want a three-pound hammer for? I said, I just want a three-pound hammer. He said, okay, that's fine. So uh, we went back to this hotel bar that I stayed in where all the degenerates and um, the criminals hung out. And so I walked into the bar to have a drink. And I took my um, three-pound hammer that I'd just newly acquired and put it on the bar and everybody scattered. Huh. <laughs> so, so I thought that was pretty amazing and, and realized then that trading in fear was my best defense. The more I could make people afraid of me, the less chance there was that people could hurt me. Hmm. And meanwhile, you're hurting inside and also self-medicating, doing drugs and alcohol to help yes. kill that pain. Is that what was going on? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was drinking probably from about 7 o'clock at night until 10 o'clock every single day. Um, I'd take uppers, downers, ecstasies. I'd smoke marijuana, do coke, whatever hmm. went. But primarily drinking from day until night. Just That's all I did was drink drink and just get into trouble. And the thing was, your father was using your physically intimidating character and wild ways. He was using those to his advantage. Is that right? Yes, that's right. My father used to introduce me to his, his friends as his mentally unstable son. That was his claim to fame, that he had a mentally unstable son. But 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 so but reading between the yeah. lines, what he was basically saying was, "Don't mess with me, or my son will will mess with you." <laughs> in a sense, is that right? <laughs> well, that's that's exactly what he was saying. And so my dad used to get into a lot of fights. My dad once got into a fight with a with a whole rugby team. Oh wow! Um, unbeknownst to me, on the other side of the bar, and then my father had come around to me and said, "I had to go and restore the Lipiet honor." because he'd, he'd had a bit of a beating. So I had to go around to the other side of the bar and um, take on seven members of this rugby team. Needless to say, I didn't win, but um, yeah. a few of them were feeling sorry for themselves the next day, that's for sure. Huh. So, But you had to because your father expected it of you. Yes, that's right. There was this warped sense of Lipiet honor. 
Hmm. All right, we're going to have to stop it right there because we've run out of time for this first part of our conversation with Justin Lipiot. But Justin, we want to find out how this all turns around and how God takes the mask off and you get to be set free. So will you join us again next time to share more of your story? Absolutely, it'd be an honor. Okay, that was part one of my conversation with Justin Lipiot, who's originally from South Africa and joined us today from his home on the Sunshine Coast. As we've been hearing, Justin was kind of living a double life. On the outside, people saw a tough beer-drinking fighter like his father, but on the inside, he was quite miserable and tired of pretending to be something he wasn't. As Jesus said in the book of Luke, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. We invite you to join us again next time to hear how God eventually takes off Justin's mask and sets him free. That's all coming up next time. Until then, I'm Eric Scadabo. So long and God bless. You've been listening to Real Faith. And if you have any questions or comments, you can send us a message through our website, realfaith.org.au. That's realfaith.org.au. Real Faith is a production of Vision Christian Media. This program is a production of Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, see vision.org.au.